Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Smoke. E-cigarettes. Vape. Don't e-cig. Heat. Don't burn. Wait, here's a pouch full of nicotine. Stick it inside your lips. Tobacco, long one of the most profitable industries on the planet, is in the throes of major disruption. Parents and policymakers are up in arms about new innovations. Shareholders are antsy. Where to now? Do stay with us. Thursday, March 12th at the Modlin Center for the Arts at the University of Richmond, Full Disclosure presents 2024 sites featuring not just yours truly, but on stage with NPR White House reporter Aisha Roscoe, Amy Walter, contributor to the PBS NewsHour and host Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway, and of course our very own Ben Pavier of VPM News. We discuss election 2020. What lies ahead in this hotly contested November election? We're going to analyze the political landscape here in Virginia and beyond and take questions about the issues and candidates. Tickets still available at vpm.org slash events, Thursday, March 12th. Full disclosure, 2024 sites. Join us. Joining me from Charlottesville, Virginia, is UVA history professor Sarah Mylov. She teaches United States social and political history. The book is The Cigarette, a Political History by Harvard University Press. I really like this book, and I've been begging the good prof to come on for quite some time. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me, Robin. Well, I don't even know where to start, because you could say at any point in time where you where you take uh, – uh, political history of the cigarette industry. It could have been in wild flux. It could have been during the, uh, you know, in the 1960s with the Surgeon General's report. It could have been in the late 90s with uh, the various attorneys generals of the state taking on the industry, um, various risks of bankruptcy. But I picked this juncture because, let's say, the biggest tobacco company in the United States, Altria, which is based um, in central Virginia, it owns Philip mm-hmm. Morris. It is truly at a crossroads. Its core product, the cigarette, which has been ridiculously profitable, is, uh, I wouldn't say hemorrhaging market share, but fewer and fewer people are smoking. They're kind of aging out. They had this controversial investment. Yeah, they're dying. (laughs) They had this controversial investment in in Juul, which turns out that they had to write down billions on that. And they're also looking into other things. So where do I even start with you? Well, I'm not sure where we begin, but you're absolutely right that any decade that you pick, you could say the tobacco industry is, if not in crisis, at least in flux. And I think it's kind of hard to appreciate that from our vantage point today, because we tend to think that in the past, everybody smoked, that cigarettes, you know, prior to, say, the 1990s were wildly popular. But what I kind of discuss in my book is that the actual heyday of the cigarette was a rather short period of time, basically the two decades following the Second World War. So we're kind of um, erecting a nostalgic haze of tobacco smoke when we think that in the past just it was, you know, cigarettes were wildly popular. Um, actually, they were rather short-lived. I think when you put it all together, though, the one stat that consistently blows my mind, and, and uh, I beg forgiveness of the listeners if they heard it before on this show, but it's one of those mind-bogglers. Uh, Credit Suisse publishes an annual investing report on the performance of every major U.S. industry, uh, let's say from 1900 on. And the last time this was clocked for me, this stat was from 1900 to 2010. So a dollar invested in the average American industry in 1900 was worth $38,000 by 2010. That's an annual return of about 10%. Some did far better. A dollar invested in food companies was worth about 700000 by 2010. Chemical and electrical equipment companies returned about the same. As for tobacco, a dollar invested in tobacco stocks in 1900 was worth 
$6.3 million by 2010. That's 165 <laughs> times greater than the average industry. So with all of that controversy, with all of that volatility, with all the Surgeon General's reports and, and uh, marketing crackdowns and lawsuits and everything, this has completely smoked the market. There is no question that tobacco, if you were to have bought a stock in 1900, would make you wildly rich by 2010. But in part, that's a reflection of the fact that cigarette smoking was not very popular in 1900. It was also not very controversial. I mean, you're coming mm. back, you're seeing all of these charities for World War I and World War II veterans, the, the, the lucky strikes that they were sent off with and all that. It only truly became controversial, to my mind, in the 1960s with the Surgeon General's report, which, which you documented. So you would have thought that a, an industry like this would have collapsed on or around that date. Ah, well, I think um, that shows a bit too much faith in the power of uh, science to change people's minds overnight, even when there's a scientific consensus. I think our modern-day uh, experience with climate change aptly demonstrates the limits of science in destroying an industry. You know, my son asks me if this does the damage that it does. How is it legal? And I want to unpack that a little bit. In the book, you notice that even with the substantial reduction in smoking rates, more people die every year from tobacco-related yeah. disease than murder, suicides, alcohol, car accidents, and AIDS combined. Uh, when we break out what is in a cigarette still in the year 2020, there's acetone, which you find in nail polish remover. There's arsenic, traces of arsenic, which you see in rat poisoning. There's cadmium, which is an active component in battery acid, formaldehyde, which is used in embalming fluid, um, <laughs> nicotine, clearly, but tar, toluene, which is used to manufacture paint. So if I'm bringing the question from an elementary school student to you with all of this <laughs> stuff, in fact, and I'm, I'm, I'm not doing it with jaundiced or cynical eyes, how, with all that known, is this product still legal? I think it's totally fair to say that if cigarettes were introduced today, they would not be legal. Um, the fact is that when the modern day regime and laws were built for governing food and drugs, tobacco was written out of it way back in 1938. So it wasn't until uh, the 2000s that the FDA, really until 2009, that the FDA had any sort of purview over cigarettes. And by that time, I think that Americans had already kind of baked in the idea that these were legal. It's baked in the idea that it's legal. To find me any other analog in industry, in, 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 in consumer affairs, uh, what, whatever it is that a product, when it's actually used as directed, will, will demonstrably increase. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, heart disease, lung cancer, pancreatic cancer, high blood pressure. I, I mean, you, you illustrated in the book meticulously how to this 100-year-old, I, I wouldn't call it a long con, but a a courtship of uh, certain states and certain constituencies and, and within agriculture. But even then, you should be able to step back from it and say, uh, no, that, that doesn't work. It's striking to me that this is still a substantially legal product. It's, it's taxed in, in lumpy ways, very low tax in Virginia and Kentucky, very high tax in New York and other states, and it's still widely ubiquitous and easy to get. Yeah, I mean, it, it is shocking, but I think that part of the genius of cigarettes um, and the cigarette industry is to have individualized the risk. It's really, the, despite the success of the non-smokers' rights movement and despite the belated regulation of the cigarette industry, finally, um, in 2000. 
and nine in a really substantial way by FDA, you know, it is still the sense that it what a smoker does is his choice. And at this point now, everybody knows the risks. And so it's almost as if the industry's long strategy of deception ended up bearing fruit because at this point you can say, well, people should have known all along. It's so striking to me when you go back to World War II and uh, players like Lucky Strike, um, was it the American Tobacco Company, Mm -hmm. established smoke funds. And there were wartime songs like quote, don't be a slacker, send some tobacco. And don't forget the smoke. You said it aligned soldiers' cigarette use with sacrificing, portraying civilian support as a home front duty. Quote, so every time you take a smoke, comma, boys, send one somewhere in France. When soldiers smoke cigarettes overseas, their minor vice forgiven by the proximity of death, they help make the world safe for all Americans who took up the habit. And then you illustrate in 1915, the U.S. produced roughly 18 billion cigarettes. In 1920, it produced 47 billion. By 1930, that figure stood at nearly 124 billion cigarettes. The role of World War I can really not be overstated in uh, the history of the cigarette. And that's not just because cigarettes were distributed to soldiers in Europe. It's in part because prior to the First World War, cigarettes were considered a vice of immigrants, of foreigners, of Jews, of Eastern Europeans, of Southern Europeans living in cities. Most native-born Americans that consumed tobacco absolutely did not consume it in the form of a cigarette. And most cigarette smokers um, before World War I were people living uh, in cities, perhaps just immigrants themselves or a generation removed from the immigration experience. And prior to the First World War, there was a, a lively temperance movement against tobacco. Numerous states banned the sale of cigarettes. Kansas was the last state to repeal its ban in 1927. And so what the war did, aside from just physically moving cigarettes um, to Americans, uh, was really associate smoking with patriotism and native-born 100% Americanness, um, kind of erasing uh, its foreignness. So traversing this century, we finally get the Surgeon General's report. When was it? In 1964? 64. Mm-hmm. So in 1965, according to the CDC, 42% of adults in the U.S. smoke cigarettes. Uh, fast forward to 2017, an estimated 14% of adults, or 34 million people, smoked. And that was, I believe, a record low in terms of modern record keeping. And it's only Mm -hmm. falling from a kind of an actuarial perspective. It's become so... I mean, I remember as a kid, I'd I'd get picked up by soccer practice or something, and -and so-and-so's mom would be smoking in the car. It's absolutely taboo right now for me to see any of my children's uh, friends' parents smoke. It's just such a rarity. But even as recently as the mid-90s, you had the smoking rate at about 25% mm-hmm. of adults. Mm-hmm. And that has now collapsed to you know the low teens. What was the tipping point in that? Was it taxation? Was it incremental regulation? You point out that the FDA took until 2009 to truly get its hooks into the industry. Yeah, I think that the the most important factor in reducing smoking and most, most importantly, reducing the visibility of smoking and the social ubiquity of it and the social acceptability of it was a movement that began in earnest in the 1970s that called itself the non-smokers rights movement. And non-smokers rights activists 
claimed that they weren't really trying to get people to stop smoking, but they tried to get people to stop smoking in public. And so kind of positioning themselves in line with other rights movements at the time, the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, the environmental rights movement, non-smokers rights activists basically said that they had a right to exist in public free from what they called, you know, polluted air and the human smokestacks that were uh, tobacco smokers. Uh, the headline that came out at the end of 2019 uh the United States Senate approved the Tobacco-Free Youth Act, introduced by, get this consortium, U.S. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell from Kentucky and Virginia Democratic Senator Tim, Tim Kaine, Kaine to raise the nationwide minimum age to buy all tobacco products, including e-cigarettes and vaping devices, from 18 to 21. I ask you, Professor Milov, wouldn't that have been helpful in the 1970s? I mean, this this would have been—you had to you had to pry this from uh, the, the GOP's mouth uh, as recently as a decade ago. And then it was something that they were very forthcoming and willing to offer a concession on in 2019. Yeah. I mean, to the specific point of your question, would this have been helpful in the 1970s? Uh, Absolutely. There's documentation um, from this big trove of millions of documents that are freely available online from uh, internal tobacco industry communications that basically show executives at R.J. Reynolds and executives at Philip Morris talking about the youth smoker and young smokers. And you even have memos from executives chiding each other, we're not going to call them youth smokers anymore. We're going to call them young adult smokers. But they're talking about the very same populations and um, observing sales uh, from stores, convenience stores that are uh, by high schools. So absolutely, in the 1970s through, you know, one may argue the present day, uh, the tobacco industry has known that it's very important to court the next generation of adopters, and people tend to start smoking when they, in fact, are teenagers. So uh, that's, uh, you know, the the lifeblood of the industry. Is this essentially conceding that, no, teens really it, do not really pick up cigarettes anymore? It's the total exception to the rule. You know, teen smoking a decade ago was at a was in a twenty year decline, and so I, I, you know, this the cynic might say, "Well, you guys are slamming the barn door after the horse is actually dead." Uh, No, I think it doesn't mean anything anymore. We should be very cynical when we are thinking about the tobacco industry, and we should always assume that there's support for uh, regulation or their support for any type of posture of corporate social responsibility is done with an eye to their bottom line. So I would totally agree that it's uh, uh, slamming the barn door after it has been shut. I think also it's just a very good posture uh, for the industry. Uh, Once, of course, those rates are in decline to say, well, of course, we support Tobacco 21 laws. And I think that's when you begin to see the um, once the industry supported, you know, these so-called T21 laws, that's when you get today's GOP acceding to them. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. This is Professor Sarah Milov joining us from the University of Virginia, where she's history professor. She teaches U.S. social and political history. Her book is The Cigarette, A Political History, which is just so chock full of you know, backdoor deals and scenes and farmers and politicians and plots and intrigue. And I do wonder about the tobacco farmer. What what about this this you know this iconic person, this person we don't want him losing his livelihood or to be disenfranchised? To what extent is the multinational cigarette business still 
linked to the fate of the farmer in North Carolina or Virginia or Kentucky. I understand that we do have, have historically produced a superior, uh, you know, tan fluke cured tobacco, but I don't get the impression that, you know, it's such a make or break industry anymore. Yeah, I mean, the fate of the tobacco farmer um, has been something held up, a very useful fig leaf, if you will, or tobacco leaf, um, for the cigarette industry when it was trying to evade any manner of regulations from, you know, state taxes to federal excise taxes. And the American tobacco farmer was sustained fundamentally um, beginning in the 1930s through federal regulation. And that federal regulation was put in place essentially to protect farmers from the monopsony uh, buying power of the cigarette firms. So the idea that the uh, cigarette firms would hold up the tobacco farmer as the ultimate victim of regulation actually gets the story precisely wrong. Regulation saved tobacco farmers from the predatory buying policies of the the cigarette manufacturers. Today, there is no more federal cigarette program, though it might surprise uh, many listeners who don't come from tobacco-growing backgrounds themselves to know that the federal tobacco program lasted until 2004, uh, which is, you know, a lot longer than other federal commodity programs lasted. Uh, Many price subsidies and other types of restrictions were taken away uh, for other commodities in the 1990s, but tobacco held on. And since the end of the tobacco program, what you've seen is basically the story of American farming uh, writ large just delayed in the case of tobacco, which is to say extreme consolidation of farm units and with a smaller number of farmers holding much, much, much more acreage. And much of that acreage is bound for export. Uh, so the the mechanics of selling tobacco today look entirely different than they did before 2004. For the 20th century, tobacco farmers sold their tobacco at auctions. And so there was this lively middle industry of auction houses and industries that served auction warehouses existing, you know, throughout tobacco growing regions. Today, by contrast, all of those auction warehouses are shuttered and tobacco growers grow on contract directly for uh, cigarette manufacturers. And so that gives a tremendous amount of power to cigarette manufacturers to set the price that they will pay for the next season's tobacco. Is there something inherently carcinogenic about the tobacco leaf? I mean, before you add anything else to it, any naphthalene or traces of arsenic or tar to kind of understand, make the molecule more sticky and make it more addictive, does just lighting it on fire make it carcinogenic? I'm thinking about a, you know, let's say a a 17th century version of it in a pipe. Smoking anything can cause cardiovascular and lung disease, as we would say now. But the major change that makes cigarettes particularly deadly is the process of flu curing. And that refers to the application of a low amount of heat to tobacco as part of a finishing, an on-farm finishing practice. So if you've ever driven across the South and you see these small kind of tumble-down barns that are now probably covered in 
kudzu. Uh, those were flue-curing barns, and inside of there, tobacco leaves would be strung from the ceiling, and um, there would really be kind of a ritual aspect to doing the flue-curing. The barns would have to be manned over a, a several-day, 24-hour-a-day period to make sure that the leaves weren't going to catch on fire, but just the right amount of heat were applied. And what flue-curing does is it essentially makes the tobacco more inhalable and th thus more deadly. And it happened to be that flu-cured tobacco has, I guess in the cigarette parlance, a more mild flavor, and that is indicating its inhalability. It tastes mild and therefore you can inhale it. The flu-cured leaf itself, because it is inhalable, that is a deadly process. Um, th that is where you start to get into trouble with the cigarette. So you talk about you know disintermediating between the industry and the the fabled tobacco farmer. Here you have Juul, a product that comes out. Uh, I started noticing on the Grand Central train mm -hmm. about a decade ago, people mm -hmm. with e-cigarettes and the little blue lights. And some guy explained the USB technology to me. And then out of nowhere, I think four or five years ago, you suddenly see people start sucking on something that looks like a USB thumb drive, and right. it's Juul, and it. This is this completely takes over the market, and where we had obliterated uh, teen smoking, suddenly you hear all these stories from PTAs about students vaping down their sleeves, bathrooms becoming the vape break period, uh, mango-flavored, creme brulee-flavored jewel pods. Essentially, it's a way to freebase yep. the nicotine. You can kind of take combustion, true combustion, and tobacco out of the equation, and it is super Addictive, So much so that Altria, the biggest cigarette manufacturer in the United States, took a stake in this company, a $13 billion investment at the end of 2018 for a 35% stake in Juul, suddenly making Juul one of Silicon Valley's most valuable startups. Yeah, I mean... I mean, did that just did that just hit you out of the blue? Uh, no, I think that if you were paying attention, as you were, um, to what people were smoking a decade ago, uh, you would have begun to notice the influence of electronic cigarettes, and you would have also have noticed that there were no rules governing electronic cigarettes whatsoever. Juul was by no means the first company to pioneer these ridiculous flavors. You had those ridiculous flavors uh, in in other forms by brands we no longer remember. Explain that to me. How are there no rules? How can you just show up? I remember it was when I first started noticing these in the bodegas in New York, there were 50 different manufacturers. You get a guy from Chinatown, which would hook up a, a, one technology one week, talking to the store owner another week about it. How do you just show up and, and do that and assume that you're not going to have to deal with the USDA or the FDA? Well, I think that perhaps it wasn't um, – I mean, so you, you make your money when you can. I mean, regulators are always kind of dealing with yesterday's technology. And the fact is, you know, e-cigarettes weren't regulated by uh, the 2009 act that gave FDA purview over combustible cigarettes. So, you know, fly-by-night operations uh, made hay while they could. And they, laying the groundwork for uh, – inventive Silicon Valley disruptors uh, that ultimately formed Juul. This massive stake in Juul that Altria took, which it's since it's taken a, a quite a write down, it's since had to write down the stake by $5 billion because Juul hit all of these regulatory headwinds. There were this mysterious uh, wet lung, popcorn lung, vaping illnesses, whether or not it was linked to kind of bootleg mm -hmm. THC versions of this. 
everybody went out and, and shot Juul as an investment in the private markets last year. But I think it is the closest thing, and it's the biggest acquisition, and this was a, a one-third stake, that Altria Philip Morris has ever made. And it's the closest thing ever to kind of self-disruption. <laughs> if they see that their core product is ineluctably kind of in decline, you tell me in 20 years the cash flows are going to trickle, that they went and bought something that's kind of it's antipodal. The, the more people use this, the less they use the cigarette. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense why Altria would do this, especially if you keep in the forefront of your mind that Altria is not really a tobacco company. It's a nicotine company. It's selling addiction, right? So it it needs to find an alternative outlet if, in fact, people are going to smoke combustibles less and less. And at the same time, it burnishes Altria's reputation um, as earnestly searching for uh, an alternative to its core, its dangerous, deadly core product, which Altria is now happy to admit is, in fact, deadly. Um, so from a PR point of view, it made sense. And of course, from the core of its business, selling nicotine, it made sense. Of course, they did not anticipate the tremendous backlash and, you know, the epidemic framing of you know, teen e-cigarette use. New York Magazine had a pretty provocative feature on Juul and vaping, the title being, Who Thought Sucking on a Battery Was a Good Idea? Vaping is a health crisis that's only just begun. We've had Robin Koval of Truth, which tries to kind of bring youth smoking mm -hmm. to nothing, and they were very happy about their progress. They said, finish it. We're mm -hmm. going to take it to zero as recently as four or five years ago. And out of left field, suddenly this this epidemic of uh, vaping, it's just it's just picked up everywhere. It's not detectable. Uh, it's, it's easy to get your hands on these things. It doesn't leave that much of a smell. It, it, it's kind of unbelievable that this happened out of left field. Yeah, though, you know, in 2010... Through you know 2013, before Juul, there were people. Um, I'm thinking specifically of the group out um, in San Francisco, where where I was um, for just a few months in 2014. There were people sounding the alarm bells, and I'm sure to to many people uh, who weren't following that closely, they thought you know these are just scaremongers. They were sounding the alarm bells about these absurd flavors, and they were sounding the alarm bells that this seems to be marketed toward kids, and kids might get their hands on this. And, you know, it, it didn't take very long for those cautions to be proved, you know, warranted. So it seemed like it came out of the blue, but really, in, in the early 2010s, there were people already noticing that these flavors were attracting children. Talk to me about this other diversification that Altria and the others are taking, specifically ICOs. Philip Morris split into Philip Morris USA and Philip Morris International more than a decade ago and got regulatory approval to sell. I think if I could show you, it kind of looks like a, an iPod-type device. It's very snazzy, and there's a stubby cigarette-type thing in it. It could even be branded, Marlboro, that this electronic device heats, mm -hmm. doesn't burn, how is that going? How is that kind of is that a is that a halfway solution? It's only it's less carcinogenic than the other full freight carcinogenic Marlboro Red. Well, um, I think it once again fits into this pattern of the tobacco industry holding out technology um, as a both a new market, a, a new type of device, but also nudging up to an implicit health claim, right? And 
from just anecdotally talking to Europeans, I think ICOs are, are pretty popular overseas, which is to say we should not be surprised if in 10, 20 years we begin to better understand the long-term effects of even heat not burn technology. I think right now, and this is a point that the uh, New York Magazine article um, began to make, we simply don't have the data yet about the long-term consequences of using these supposedly less harmful products. The harms aren't going to look like um, combustible cigarettes. We don't know the form that they're going to take. And so, you know, right now the industry can profit from the position of ignorance that we're all in. Well, finally, what about marijuana? and the cigarette industry, the tobacco industry. You're talking about uh, delivery products. There's been a tremendous amount of controversy over THC and mystery lung illnesses. What if these guys can standardize the experience, get you THC in an FDA-type regulated device? They can afford to be agnostic whether they're delivering nicotine or they're delivering the buzz from cannabis. Do you think they take that seriously? Altria, after all, has made some pretty decent-sized acquisitions in the space. Yes, I think they take that very seriously. I mean, the tobacco industry has uh, more than, you know, 100 years of experience in selling uh, small standard sized um, devices to deliver an addictive experience and to um, arouse the pleasure centers of people's brains. And I think they absolutely would love to see a future in selling various forms of marijuana. Uh, As regards the history of the industry in marijuana, it's quite interesting. When the industry was under intense attack in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s. It made a big show of contrasting tobacco smokers with marijuana smokers. Um, and it did so, you know, particularly to say that the type of habituation um, that a cigarette smoker experienced was nothing like the type of addiction that a, uh, you know, a marijuana fiend uh, experience. <laughs> Marijuana. Yeah, I mean, the it's it would. It sounds so 1950s. I mean, it, wacky tobacco. It was it was very much in that vein that um, cigarette smoking was something that didn't interfere with your family life and your responsibilities and your your masculinity and your ability to participate as a good virtuous you know uh, citizen. Whereas other things one could smoke and many did um, got in the way of all of those things. So of course we shouldn't be surprised that the industry. Um, goes back on its history and speaks out of both sides of its mouth, uh, it would be, of course, consistent. That That is the story of tobacco, too. Sarah Mylov, The Cigarette of Political History, read the book. It's one of my uh, favorite nonfiction books from 2019. I'm not going to lie. I also loved uh, the interview you did on C-SPAN's Book TV. You guys should definitely go and, and check it out oh, for thank you. many things we were not able to address in this interview. Uh, Sarah Mylov, UVA history professor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Robin. It was really fun. Joining me in studio is Dr. Danny T. Avula, director of Richmond and Henrico County's health departments. He was trained as a pediatrician, came to Richmond uh, at the turn of the century. Is that correct? <laughs> Makes it sound so old, Robin. But in yes. the year 2000? <laughs> Well, I understand you have your hands absolutely full with the coronavirus, and we're going to get to that um, later in the show. But we are talking today about uh, tobacco, and this was an irresistible thing for you in that you were brought to big tobacco town in Richmond. You came here. You ascended to, to, to run these departments at a time when policymakers were crowing about the youth smoking rate had been kind of obliterated to low single digits. But then out of nowhere in 
you know, two, three years ago, you suddenly start hearing parents and teachers and principals talking about these USB type drives and everybody is vaping. And suddenly we have like this freebase nicotine epidemic. Tell me about that. Yeah, it is one of the most kind of remarkable explosions from an epidemic standpoint. Uh, you're right that in terms of teen and youth smoking, uh, public health folks felt like we were getting pretty close to, to snuffing this out, uh, pardon the pun. But, uh, you know, what has happened with e-cigs and with vaping is that we have seen uh, historic rises in youth use. You know, we went uh, in 2017, uh, we had youth e-cigarette e-vaping rates at about 11.7%. The next year in 2018, that, mm. that jumped up to 20.8%. And then the, er, the early reads on the 2019 numbers are at 27.5% nationally. And so we've seen just historic rise in, uh, in, in use of e-cigarettes and vaping. And the CDC actually says for all substances that are used, this is the highest year-to-year increase we've seen uh, in terms of youth use of, of any substance known. Let me ask you as a pediatrician, as a father, as a public health wonk, what is it about kids and the kind of the drip drip of stimulation? We get it with the smartphone and with Instagram and TikTok and affirmation and a, a, a stimulant kind of in this era of overstimulation where, as it's described to us, the jewel hit, the vape hit, this kind of free base hit of, of uh, super concentrated nicotine that hits the back of your head. What is it about that and the youth developing brain, the pre-adolescent brain? Yeah, well, I, there's certainly the the biological part of this, right? There's the the fact that nicotine feels good. It 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 uh, it releases things in your body that make you actually uh, feel calm, uh, that give you a little bit of a high, um, and then probably more concerning than anything, is extremely addictive. And so for the developing youth brain, you know, the, the prefrontal cortex of the adolescent is continuing to develop through uh, up to age 25 or so. And so, uh, you know, high doses of nicotine have been shown to affect memory and concentration and attention and the ability to learn. And so it is really a significant concern that we found extremely effective ways to uh, to introduce nicotine into, into adolescents. And so, uh, yeah, lots of and, and I, I would say above and beyond, you know, sort of the, the feel good part of this uh, are a, a bunch of different, you know, social factors, right? That like to be part of an in crowd, you do these things. Uh, you know, a recent survey by the CDC showed that over 60 percent of folks who who started uh, youth vaping was just because they were interested in, in what in what was going on. It's not that they were necessarily looking for a high, uh, but they just thought it was like a cool thing to do because their friends were doing it. Uh, interestingly, second most, the second largest reason why why youth started vaping, because of the flavors, because it tasted good. Uh, and so we'll talk more during the session, certainly, about that. But that that's a major concern as well. You know, Dr. Vula, you're a young man. But back in my day in high school, when I wanted to take, you know, when I was on the brink of an AP test or something in, in springtime, you know, the, the, the most taboo stimulant we might use is Vibrin or uh, <laughs> Jolt Cola, if you knew of a bodega that would hook you up with Jolt Cola. And then there were it was it was a sad thing kind of smoker's alley outside the the handful of of people there was a significant uh intersection with the stoners with the with the beatniks the people uh, uh playing hooky um again th- there's something else that a, a lot of what you're hearing also with uh, the former surgeon general uh, Vivek Murphy that we're going to have on the show talking about this epidemic of loneliness and depression among teens there's something else at play with the desire I, I don't know what the metaphor is this this drip for stimulation. You're not getting it out of coffee. 
this seems to be the, the, the chemical thing to lean on. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I think that as kids are looking for uh, both something to make them feel good, but also something to help them fit in, it's uh, uh, there's a social aspect to it. You know, a lot of kids start this because they're uh, sitting around after school, and and one kid's using and wants the other two. Um, so I, I think I think you're right. I think there's this sense of how do I fit in? How do I be part of an in crowd? Um, how do I uh, just help myself feel better in a time of life where uh, a lot of things do the opposite. Uh, We did see a development this week in Virginia's Attorney General Mark Herring announcing that he's joined the 39-state coalition investigating Juul's sales practice. Juul's the leader in vaping, including the targeting of youth and statements regarding the risks, safety, and efficacy as a smoking cessation device. Um, I am quoting the AG and saying, the number of young people in Virginia and across the country who are vaping or using e-cigarettes is truly a public health crisis. While we've made great strides in reducing the number of young people who use more traditional tobacco-based products, we're now unfortunately seeing the number of Virginia teens vaping and using e-cigs climb at an alarming rate. What did you think when uh, Altria, which owns Philip Morris USA, is based right here in Henrico County, when the news came out at the end of 2008 that they were making their biggest investment ever. They spent nearly $13 billion to take a 35% stake in Juul. So disruptive was this technology. What were people fearing that this was going to help Juul with marketing? Was it going to bring a more responsible, more seasoned kind of multinational player to to discipline what had been kind of a Wild West startup? Uh, Now it seems to be more problematic because they significantly overpaid for it. They've been taking write downs. But if we look back at Altria or Philip Morris International, these have been the pros Uh, for the past 50, 60 years at marketing to young people. Yeah, and that's deeply concerning to me as a pediatrician and a public health physician. You know, I think that um, some of what we've seen over the last couple of years in terms of the way that Juul has marketed, uh, it's, it's taken a page out of the, the cigarette industry from the 60s and 70s. You know, it's slick, it's cool, it's sexy, it's it's for the strong. Um, all of the same stuff is coming back with, with Juul. Um, and so that's why Virginia uh, kind of jumped in with these 38 other states to pursue this legal action. Um, you know, some of the allegations are pretty concerning, you know, not only, uh, you know, specific examples of the kind of marketing that Juul has been using, but the places that they've been marketing. Uh, some of the allegations were that they were buying, um, do, doing ad buys on on Nickelodeon and NickJr.com, um, clearly targeting youth in their approach. And so uh, I think it's, it's really important that there is a concerted effort to figure out how we stop marketing to youth um, um, and then also, you know, do everything we can from a policy standpoint to decrease accessibility to well, youth. You step away from youth for a minute for a person who's, you know, I've, I've spoken to uh, who's a former owner of New York Pizza downtown, I think, in, in Chaco Bottom or New York. You know, and he was outside with one of these kind of vaping tanks. It's not even an e-cig. It's not a jewel, but I call it's mods. A, mods, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, and he said he was a two-pack-a-day smoker. I spoke to him several years ago, and it was truly uh, for him to be able to just – freebase, the close to pure nicotine, the glycolic solution, um, was extremely helpful to Mm -hmm. him because you're getting that hit without the tar, without the cadmium, the arsenic, everything else that's in the traditional uh, combustible tobacco product. Um, What about this as a substitution device for veteran smokers who people want to get on it? I mean, there has to be something to be said for it being a far cleaner alternative, albeit not purely safe. Sure. And I I think that's what 
complicates this issue some is that there are some benefits to what e-cigarettes have offered, especially to, to smokers who are trying to quit. There's there's a number of studies that uh, that have shown that e-cigarettes actually do help people uh, quit smoking and transition to, to vaping. Um, and I think you know, I, there's a place, and that's you know when Juul when Juul and other e-cig companies started, like that was the approach that they took. They said that we're going to create as uh, slick and and tech looking uh, an electronic device as possible, and our market is going to be helping existing smokers quit. Uh, and we've just seen that that is not the case, right? Because of the way this has been marketed, because of uh, the flavors, because of the look, because of the advertising, uh, we've we've seen this attempt to solve one public health problem create a whole different public health problem. Uh, and so we can't be blind to that. But but yes, what you're saying is true, that that there are people who have benefited from uh, from vaping as an alternative. What, what, what was on your mind, I mean, for much of last year where you suddenly had people with uh, popcorn lung or wet lung syndrome, you didn't know if these were kind of uh, bootleg vaping devices, if people were using them for THC or if it had something to do with the uh, uh, um, you know, maybe the oil solution in it, mm-hmm. that suddenly everybody was throwing everything out and public health advocates were terrified that people, young people who are uh, hooked on nicotine suddenly might look at the cigarette as a safer alternative to this huge unknown of the vape product that's suddenly sending people to emergency rooms. Right, because we got so many people addicted to nicotine, and now if something was going to pull vaping off the market, would that would that switch people back to smoking? Um, and in fact, the, you know, there's some data that that shows that uh, peop- that youth who start vaping are more likely to actually smoke cigarettes as well. Uh, it's pretty early on in that trajectory, so so we'll see. But you know, when those cases uh, started to break last August. Uh, uh, I mean, it was so many so quickly that it was. I mean, it was it was really uh, frightening to to try to understand what was going on. Uh, so far, we've had about twenty seven hundred cases nationally of what we call e valley, um, e cigarette and vaping associated lung injury, um, and that uh, you know as as researchers have have uh, really honed in on the specific cause of that lung injury, it seems that there were some additives uh, to uh, the vape juice is specifically uh, vitamin E acetate and may- maybe a few others uh, that when aerosolized were causing significant lung inflammation. And so uh, some of those things have been pulled out of vape products. Uh, we have not seen as many cases in, in recent months. But uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a very scary time in, in public health as, as all of this was erupting so quickly. You know teens love to jury rig if possible. Yeah. And there's only so much you can do with a cigarette. You could kind of empty it out, put pot... Or, or lace it with something else, but uh, and, and vaping products. I mean, with this uh, Gillette kind of cartridge model, which is hugely profitable, if you buy these pods of super uh, super concentrated nicotine salts. Uh, you have this culture out there. You can go on YouTube and look at people with these vape hacks uh, that that say, "Listen, you can do this instead of going back to the Seven Eleven and buying the traditional factory supply thing." And in fact, we can put THC oil in this. Yeah. That must really terrify a person. There was a reckoning last year where suddenly people realized that uh, even marijuana vaping, however pure you thought it was, with this device, simply because of uh, one of the uh, again. Uh, emulsifiers used the the oils used in it could be immediately lethal to your lungs and and to, to kind of take this back to kind of make sense of it is you have a product that's not exactly closed architecture people can jury rig it sure uh, young people will seek out 
cheaper alternatives to this. Back in the day, you could buy cheaper cigarettes or bum cigarettes off of people. Now you hear the stories are rampant. I spoke with a principal in Chesterfield about uh, the seizure of of uh, CBD pods mm-hmm. uh, that were you know you're, you're supposed to be able to backward put into these these jewel things. Now there's only so much that public health people and lawmakers can do with that because that's kind of the the street. That's like the black market value. Of yeah, something. that's right. Um, you know, I. I, it it has been an entire subculture has been created here, right? Of, of figuring out how to modify your aerosolizing device to put in more coils to introduce new things to your vape juice, and um, you know it's it's kids and adults looking for that next high, that next uh, you know adaptation of of whatever they're using, and. I, You're right. It's incredibly hard to regulate all of that, Um, particularly when we have uh, so much black market activity. I mean, not just in the States, but uh, places all over the world that people are sourcing their vape juices. And that's part of what contributed to the Evali explosion last year is that people were buying black market THC vape products. That stuff is totally unregulated. People didn't know what was in it. Um, and, and it turns out that there are a bunch of concerning things, not only the vitamin E acetate, but uh, uh, other things that, that you know, cancer-causing agents, heavy metals were found to be in some of those. And, you know, the CDC is regularly testing things that come uh, in, these, in these vape juice packets. And so, uh, yeah, it is greatly concerning that not only, um, you know, the, the vape juice that is being mass-produced and sold, but also all of the, the versions that are being produced on the black market, um, you know, we're, we're, it's this kind of ridiculous, massive experiment that we're aerosolizing all kinds of stuff that we don't know what it is and putting it in our lungs and don't really know. It's going to take years, Longitudinal studies to yeah. realize. I mean, it took us, what, 20, 30 years before we figured out the smoking was bad for us. Um, and so I, I worry that we're on the same trajectory with e-cig use, right? It, the fact that, uh, yes, there are some positives. It's helping some smokers get off of smoking. But we're also putting... Uh, you know, a lot of unknown things in our lungs without a lot of knowledge about what that's doing to us. And I worry that it's going to be another 20 or 30 years before we look back and say, man, what were we thinking? Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Dr. Danny T. Kavula, director of Richmond and Henrico County's health departments, a veteran trained pediatrician, public health Wonk came to Richmond from Northern Virginia in the year 2000. Is yeah, that right? That's right. Well, I came from Charlottesville. I came uh, by way of the University of Virginia. But yeah. I have to ask you, so when you when you were here, smoking was allowed in restaurants and other places. <laughs> sure. I mean, it's amazing to think back. You know, when I was dating my now wife, uh, it was my girlfriend, and we'd come here, you'd, you'd leave smelling like an ashtray in certain places. And it's unthinkable that we had for so long been okay with walking into a restaurant. Um, now, largely, the cigarette itself has become taboo. And to that end, if you're in Carytown, for example, you know, our low-rise uh, retail and restaurant district here, you see all manner of uh, vape shops and everything. And one shiny Icos shop opened up uh, several months ago. This was the product, uh, this joint venture between Philip Morris International and Altria, the parent of Philip Morris USA. These, 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 what is it? Heat not burn sticks. It's a very snazzy looking, almost like an iPhone type device that holds a pen with a stub version of a branded cigarette mm-hmm. that um, in theory, at least, if you're heating it and not burning it, you're not getting the full combustible plume, the hit coming down into your lungs. Uh, have you heard anything about this anecdotally? I, I've seen pictures of the Icos model. Um, I haven't I haven't learned a ton about it yet, but I, I 
it doesn't seem uh, that much different. I mean, in terms of the fact that we're still inhaling things that are going into our lungs. And so I, I guess the question, you know, that that we'll, we'll see it's as they learn more about ICOS and, and uh, is exactly how much gets deposited into the lung and, and where is the opportunity for potential lung injury or other other developments down the road. But I, I think it's an example of, you know, earlier you had asked the question of what what does a giant like Altria buying uh, a, a share in Juul and, and uh you know, what concerns does that raise for the public health uh, contingent? And it's that that's a billions of dollars into R&D uh, to find new ways to introduce addictive substances uh, to our population. And so, uh, you know, whether it's ICOS or whether it's Juul, you know, I think Juul is a great example of, of folks like a uh, a really impressive design focus, right? Like you had these two guys out of Stanford who came up with a really snazzy way to uh, – introduce nicotine into your body and and the the design of that the look of it the feel of it uh is something that that all people and youth especially have have like quickly jumped onto as we've seen in the the increasing rates over the last three years and it's kind of surreal to have been on the new york city subway uh last year and uh so many people kind of smell like this mango vapor Mm, you could tell uh that that was very popular i don't know if they still have a creme brulee or mint version of it and these things were very problematic with Young people. Anecdotally, you had uh, young people taking jewel hits inside classes and puffing back out into their sleeves, doing it behind the scenes. Uh, you can evade smoke detectors in the bathroom. Right. It was a really kind of devious. Uh, foe. Sure. One of the selling points of Juul for, for youth especially is that you could do it discreetly. You could do it in school. You could do it even at home. You could do it around others without them really knowing what you were doing. Um, and to your, your earlier comments about the flavors, I, I would say that that, uh, that is a major, major concern for the youth aspect of this, right? Because uh, I think what probably kept a lot of youth from smoking in the first place was uh, the smell, uh, the fact that it gets into your clothes, and it's just not a very attractive habit. But now you can smell like mango. You can smell like blue raspberry. Why would you not want to taste, have that in your mouth? And so, uh, and and as I said before, you know, that, that CDC study showed that over 40% of people who started vaping did it because of the flavors. And so it is deeply concerning that we have, uh, we've really allowed the industry uh, to make things more and more palatable and attractive uh, to, to youth and to get them addicted at an early age. Uh, Where is this all going to head now? I mean, you have an industry that in its defense, I mean, so many people have been disrupted by digital. If you look at Juul as digital, if you look at e-cigs as digital, Mm -hmm. I remember some of the early ones when I left New York in 2012 would light up blue, you have USB connectivity to it. Right now, you, you did see something in the news about maybe adding Bluetooth functionality to limit what youth people can do. It's kind of hard to put this genie back in the bottle. Yeah, it really out. is. I mean, And, and I, also, I meant to ask you belatedly, suddenly the Senate in bipartisan fashion increased the federal smoking age to 21. I, I, I asked Professor Milop, wouldn't that have been helpful in the 1970s? <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I will say that it's good news, but it feels um, it feels like more of the overarching uh, or maybe the behind the scenes negotiations between the industry and the government. You know, I think that, um, yes, it's a good it's a it's a helpful thing for us to move to a, a purchase age of 21. Um 
at at the same time, the federal government was considering a, a ban on flavored vape substances, and uh, that that law was weakened significantly. Which uh, it, there's plenty of loopholes where uh, you know disposables aren't counted in that. There's lots of ways for the industry to continue uh, providing options for for users. Um, so where does this all go? Yeah, I think the 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 comment you made about the the technology adapting so that uh, you know Jewel is currently thinking about how to uh, create something that will only unlock if you're 21 or over. Um, and I think that's a step in the right direction. Um, I think that we've got to we've got to really look hard at what we allow in terms of advertising of these substances, um, advertising that particularly targets youth. A lot of the, uh, not just Juul, but a lot of the e-cigarette advertising uh, has, has used models that look really young. They, they, they use sort of iconography that really uh, attracts a, a youth demographic. Um, and so so in addition to limiting use by raising the purchase age, um, ad- addressing uh, advertising around this, we've also got to look at, um, you know, the other policy practices that we know decrease uh, tobacco and e-cigarette usage, which are really around cost. Uh, you know, so one of the big public health interventions over the last decade has been uh, tobacco taxes increasing uh, in- increasing the cost of cigarettes, and that has contributed to a decrease in usage. You know, if I wasn't a public radio host, I'd be a tobacco smuggler. Mm. I'd be a nicotine <laughs> cowboy because you no, know, you know the huge terminus yeah. of of the smuggling industry is to start in Richmond or right Kentucky. Here, yeah. It's use tax arbitrage and take it to New York or Massachusetts and other places. Um, it's it's been a very hard bone to rest. I mean, even Lavar Stoney pushing through a higher tax, you get significant pushback from one of the biggest employers here. Absolutely, they show up at the city council meetings, and it's by orders of magnitude how different it is to go to a Wawa or sheets in Richmond or Henrico and buy a pack of Marlboro Reds versus what you'd have to pay in New Jersey or New York. Yeah, you're right. We Virginia has, uh, as a state, we have the second lowest tax in the country, uh, trailing Missouri as the lowest. Uh, and there was some conversation in the General Assembly to, to try to increase that, but it hasn't gone anywhere this year. Um, Richmond took a huge step forward in, in actually passing a tobacco tax this past year, a 50 cent per pack tax. Um, and, you know, I would I would just want to give kudos to both our mayor, LeVar Stoney, and our city council, because not only did we recognize, uh, you know, that there would be, uh, you know, positive outcomes to increasing the tobacco tax. But we also recognize that we did not want to disproportionately impact low-income residents of our city because, by and large, our poorest residents are the ones who smoke at the highest rates. And so what city council did uh, to counteract that was they set aside $600,000 a year to fund nicotine replacement therapy uh, and smoking cessation programming through the health department. Uh, And that way, not only are we uh, trying to provide a stick to reduce smoking, but we're providing the carrot of actually doing uh, coaching and nicotine replacement therapy for the folks who need it most. Dr. Vula, in the couple of minutes that we have left, I have to ask you about the 500-pound elephant, 500-ton elephant in the room, the <laughs> coronavirus potential pandemic. I, yeah. you know, I'm, I, I can't believe that this potentially started in a wet market in Wuhan, China. Suddenly you see Iran and Italy, whole swaths of, of those countries on lockdown. Uh, what are you thinking? Uh, what's the state of play, the conversation you're having with other public health uh, advocates and officials across the country? Yeah, well, uh, I think 
that it is gravely concerning, I mean, the speed at which it has uh, traversed the globe, uh, and particularly just over over the last weekend, seeing the rate at which this has exploded in Italy and Iran. Um, and I think, you know, most public health officials understand that it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not an if, but a when uh, in terms of this coming to the United States. I mean, we have had 14 confirmed cases here in the U.S. Twelve of those were folks who were travel related, who had traveled in China um, and two had uh, had contracted that from their contact here in the U.S. Um, I will say something that does give me a lot of uh, hope and confidence is that we have a really robust public health infrastructure. And so all the steps we've taken from screening in airports to, you know, all the way down to the local health department level of actually monitoring people who have had any concerning travel history. Uh, You know, so far in Richmond, we've had uh, 11 folks assigned to us that we're uh, calling and monitoring on a regular basis for for the development of symptoms. Um, and, And thankfully, that extensive public public health in infrastructure exists throughout most of our country. That said, it's not foolproof. And so at some point we will see uh, this virus, uh, you know, come to the U.S. In, in more of a profound way. Um, I think that it's it's unlikely that we'll see it impact, uh, you know, in terms of the fatality rate to the degree that it has in China, um, just because I think, uh, you know... What did you think about seeing that doctor in China uh, come to this over a doctor who was sounding... Yeah, very, very concerning. I mean, I, I, I've, I've heard, had lots of conversations with folks about, you know, what does that mean? What, you know, he do expect that he would have the best care possible. Um, I think the reality is that with any new virus, uh, you know, we've our bodies have never seen this before. We don't have antibodies to it. We don't have. It'll take a couple of years for us to develop antivirals or vaccines that are going to protect us against this. And so, um, while while I think, uh, yes, it will, it will impact our population when. It it comes. Um, but I also do feel like we have the best health care infrastructure of, of any country in the world, um, which should protect against a lot of the severity that we're seeing in other places. Dr. Danny T. Avula, director of Richmond and Henrico County's health departments. Uh, the city is quite lucky to have you and you are always welcome on this show. Thank you, Robin. Great to be here. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Special thanks to producer Kelly Libby. This show airs on NPR member station VPM News on the trusty NPR One app, which I cannot live without. I I drive everywhere with it. Uh, When I wake up at 3 or 4 in the morning and I need a news hit, I go right there. And, of course, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts at FullDRadio.com. Rank us highly. I, I crave your affirmation. All the flavor with none of the eels. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week. (laughs) 